showtime. Welcome to the show, folks. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome to Night Fright. Folks, we have a very special guest for you tonight. You're going to want to speak with this guest. You're going to want to ask him questions because when was the last time, if ever, you had the opportunity to speak to a CIA covert operative? Our guest tonight is Reza Khalili. He was a CIA covert op. Guess where? In the hot spot in the world, folks. Iran. Dead center in Iran in the Revolutionary Guards. His book is called A Time to Betray. Here's the phone number. 310-421-4053. Easier way to get through. Free call on Skype. Freedom Screen 2. F-R-E-E-D-O-M-S-C-R-E-E-N-2. Covert op tonight, folks. A real CIA covert op. Reza, I want to welcome you to the show, my friend, and it's good to have you back. How are you? Salam, Chitori. Thanks so much. Salam. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be back uh, on your show. Merci. Uh, Chitori? I'm I'm fine. Thank you so much, and I hope you're well. And Chubam, uh, baby, Chubam. <laughs> Always doing well. We're going to split from Farsi now, folks, because that's about it. That's all I know, except uh, somebody who loves me keeps telling me our Martike Bitabiet, which means, of course, as Reza knows, you're very handsome. <laughs> you want to tell them what it really means? <laughs> oh, well, it means that you Let's put, <laughs> Let's put it this way, folks. It's kind of like you're a rude pig. Something <laughs> yeah. It doesn't quite translate, but let's put it that way. Let's get into it right away, shall we, Reza? Right. Iran, are they building a nuclear weapon? Well, uh, here's the thing. You've got to look at North Korea. Uh, Iran and North Korea have been working hand in hand uh, for a very long time. Uh, and basically, I reported it, as I've stated in my book, uh, I reported the relationship in the 80s where um, Iranian officials would travel there, uh, revolutionary guards, commanders would travel there, and then uh, our intelligence services you know, were being trained by the North Koreans as well as the guards, uh, pilots, and others. And so there was a very close collaboration. And the path that North Korea chose has been a lesson for the rulers of Iran um, as they've been defying the United Nations mandates to stop working on their ballistic missiles and nuclear program. And today, um, actually, Iran is ahead of North Korea on the ballistic program. They've already launched three satellites into space. They're launching more. And uh, uh, as I reported a while back, one of the commanders said that they have, in essence, intercontinental ballistic missile delivery. And the programs are a parallel program, so they've been building the nuclear program on one side and the ballistic missile delivery program on the other. And, you know, how many years did it take for U.S. to get the bomb in the Manhattan Project? A few years. And, and North Korea. And so uh, they have passed the threshold. If they have not armed the ballistic missile with the warhead, is because both North Korea and Iran are trying to um, solve that complexity and get to that point. 
Folks, you're just joining us. We're speaking with a CIA covert operative who is inside the hot spot of the world, Iran, folks, the Revolutionary Guards. And he's going to be giving us the inside scoop on what's really going on behind the scenes, deep inside the regime of Iran. Now, we all know Iran is not the most humanistic uh, in terms of human rights. They hang gay people. They torture people. They even still stone women. There are ten women on death's row right now awaiting to be stoned to death. So I'm going to ask you, Reza, if they get the bomb, once they get the bomb, there's a whole group of people out there that say, well, you know, Israel's got the bomb. We have the bomb. Why can't Iran have the bomb? Well, uh, first of all, on the human rights issue, let me touch very briefly that uh, the regime, the Islamic regime in Iran is one of the most brutal regime in the world. Uh, they have executed tens of thousands of Iranians, but uh, their act has been most despicable where they have raped girls and boys uh, in prisons uh, as a means of torture. And just in the last seven weeks, uh, they have executed 80 people. So nobody talks about that. And, and we try to, the media tried to paint a moderate picture of Rouhani where under his uh, command, uh, dozens are being executed daily. And so uh, that's one side of it. But, but talking about why the regime cannot have nuclear bomb, it's simple. You've got to study the history, and the history shows that uh, marine barracks bombing, Kobar bombing, Panam bombing, uh, the expansion of terror network into Europe, the expansion of terror network into Latin America, into Mexico, uh, a collaboration with Venezuela, Nicaragua, Cuba, Syria. And so they have always strategized uh, because they know conventionally they cannot combat the U.S., but they've always strategized to expand the network in a way that it, it poses an imminent and destructive danger to, the, uh, to, the, to, to world society, to world peace, and use that as a means to take the world hostage, which they've done successfully. And so if, if you say, okay, let, let them have the bomb, then the next thing would be that you will find nuclear uh, warheads in Syria. You will find uh, uh, dirty bombs in the hand of Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad, even Al-Qaeda. And, 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 and an expansion of that uh, capability into Venezuela, Cuba, and others. And so it, the proliferation will become a nightmare with Israel we know what we have. We have a partner. It's, uh, they have never attempted to use it. They have never threatened to use it, uh, though they have been engaged in many wars. Uh, but, uh, and also with Russia and China. We know that uh, uh, they, they adhere to the, uh, to, the, to the rules and regulations of being a nuclear-armed state uh, and the consequences, understanding the consequences of using such a weapon. And so, but, but with those who believe in the coming of the last Shiite Messiah, that they are the ones who are going to hand the key of the world to the last Shiite Imam, you, will, you cannot and you should not trust giving them the capability to get nuclear bombs. And besides that, the country Iran is right by the Persian Gulf, controls the Strait of Hormuz. 
over 20% of world energy passes through there. Any instability in there will choke the world, will create global depression, and, and create havoc, exactly what they believe in the theology that it's needed to bring about the end of times. Folks, we're speaking with a real CIA covert op, folks. Reza Khalili, his book is called A Time to Betray. Easy way to get that book. And all our guest book, as always, www.nightfrightshow.com. www.nightfrightshow.com. If you're just joining us, I'm going to give you a couple of numbers. Telephone number is 310-421-4053. Easier way, as always, folks, Skype, Freedom Screen 2. That's Freedom Screen 2. Now, if you're just joining us, as I said, Reza Khalili, CIA covert op, get the coffee going, get the tea going, get a beverage of your choice going. It's going to be a hot show tonight, folks. Uh, It's going to be much more up-paced and less relaxed than usual because... There's a lot to get in, and this is the real deal. It's not often you get a chance to speak to a real CIA covert op. And if you've got questions for him, please feel free to call in, and I'll leave it up to Reza whether he wants to field those questions or not. Now, Reza, you had touched on Syria. Let's go there right away. We know that Syria operates strictly as an extension of Iran, Inside Syria, there's Hezbollah, who's sworn to destroy. Not only, it's not just about Israel, folks. It's about Jews in general. These are the new Nazis. Let's be very clear here. Okay, we're not talking pretty little Zionists or anything like that. When people use the word Zionists, they mean Jews. They're the new Nazis. What's the threat in Syria right now? What's going on there? We we see these two biker gang type of... Um, theologies clashing against each other. Which side is Iran backing? Is it still Assad? Oh, well, yes, and, and here's the thing. The, the relationship between the regime, Islamic regime in Iran and, and uh, uh, Assad regime goes back to Hafez al-Assad, goes back to the beginning of the Islamic revolution uh, when they established uh, military bases in Syria and started creating Hezbollah and Islamic Jihad out of Syria and even uh, collaborating with the uh, Palestinian Front and other organizations in order to uh, combat the West and Israel. And so uh, it's very deep and it is very tight. Uh, they call it the front, uh, for uh, the resistance front, you know, the trial of Iran, Syria, and Hezbollah. And they understand clearly that if Syria falls, then the regime in Iran could be next. It's essential. It's significant for the regime uh, to have uh, Assad in place, uh, to regain control of uh, of Syria, and 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 this is a bigger proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and this happened because of lack of um, uh, a straight policy uh, by the U.S. in the Middle East, uh, especially by President Obama, and so this void is being filled. Uh, now, uh, between uh, Saudi Arabia and Iran, Saudi Arabia trying to destabilize Syria, Iran trying to destabilize Bahrain, Yemen, uh, and uh, Jordan, uh, Kuwait, and even in Saudi Arabia. And so um, the Assad regime, and, and they've said this, the commanders of the regime have said this, that 
in Syria, Iran and Syria are on one side and the rest of the world on the other. Hmm. Reza, you know, you, going back and to Syria... And they feel that they've been extremely successful. Just when President Obama wanted to attack Syria because of the chemical weapons... Go ahead. Oh, I go was going to say, well, you just touched on the subject I wanted to bring up. Um, the chemical weapons and uh, the Syrian regime and President Obama. Now, folks, I'm going to say something pretty controversial here, and I'm probably going to take a lot of heat from it, especially given our audience, but there is a Mossad report that dates back to 1998-99 where Iraq, under Saddam Hussein, was getting all their chemical weapons, their WMDs, out to Syria. Now, just go back in time a few months, and what did what happened in Syria? A chemical attack on their own people. Is there, a, is there dots to be connected there? I would say yes, without question. Is that why they didn't find overt w, WMDs in Iraq? Perhaps, but that's a true Mossad report, and I don't want to say how I got that, but... Let's go back to Reza. Let's talk about those chemical attacks and the barbaric use of them by the Assad regime. Well, you better see, uh, it's, it's very well documented. I don't think anyone, any entity could deny the fact that Saddam Hussein had chemical weapons because they used it against the Iranian forces in the front. I was a witness to that. I reported it during the Reagan administration. They acknowledged it and uh, they took action. And so uh, Saddam Hussein had the chemical weapons and um, basically he was warned not to use it against the U.S. forces when uh, when uh, U.S. invaded Iraq. And um, going back to, uh, going to, to to the circumstances now, um, Syria uh, is uh, the Assad is clinging to power. Uh, they will do anything to to uh, defeat the rebels on the other side, and so they use the chemical weapons. And when President Obama threatened to attack, uh, even though it was a mild threat, the regime in, in Iran sent a very strong message. That number one, if U.S. attacks Syria, Iran will directly get involved and attack all U.S. bases in the region and Israel. And number two, that the nuclear negotiations will be off the table. And they claim victory for the Obama administration backing down from that attack. Uh, uh, at least in their mind, they think that they've been successful. But so far, they have drastically helped Assad. Uh, to kind of uh, uh, get a stronger hold on what's going on. And after the chemical weapon attack on his, uh, uh, his own people, now they're using barrel bombs, which is very dangerous uh, for the civilians. And we have acknowledged that, but we are not doing anything about it. What could we do that we're not doing? Well, you see, it's a very difficult situation. Uh, it, it is complex. It's a very complex region. Uh, we don't want to get involved directly in Syria uh, because then Russia uh, uh, might get involved. And, and it, it, it could become a, a very difficult situation. What we could do, we could do much more intelligence work and try to recognize the rebels that are not affiliated with al-Qaeda. And, and help those and provide intelligence and create uh, and provide more heavy weaponry, more smart weaponry uh, and information to kind of tilt the balance. But I think uh, the U.S. right now is satisfied with the um, 
with the state that the things are in Syria. Uh, that's, you know, it's, it's in between. They're fighting each other, but nobody has the upper hand. And so for now, at least, they're thinking strategically this is where it should be. But uh, uh, we've got to think long term because uh, things could get out of hand easily. Very easily. And you had mentioned Russia as well. We all forget that the bearer is not dead by any sense, and that's the only deep water port they have, folks. So they're very, very careful of uh, trying to prop up the Assad regime because that's a very good defense mechanism for the Russian bear. Now, Iran and Russia, are they in bed together anywhere? Oh, absolutely. Actually, the Russians got involved right after the revolution. There were so many KGB officers in, in Iran that, you know, walking on the streets in Tehran, you would bump into one at every corner. They immediately started collaboration with the guards' intelligence, helping them with the tortures, with the, uh, with the surveillance, with, the, uh, uh, with, with, with uh, uh, fighting the uh, uh, democratic movement in Iran and trying to to solidify the regime, and after that with weaponry. I mean, a lot of weaponry is coming from Russia, uh, helping the regime, plus intelligence. And Russia has been one of the strongest backers of the regime in the United Nations and uh, in, in the world community. And, and so uh, uh, Russia definitely has got the uh, back of the mullahs. Reza, I'm going to continue along those lines. Is China involved with Iran as well, because we always are under the assumption that Russia and China don't get along so well, but perhaps they're both seeing Iran as some kind of gravitational pull, if you will, to bring them together. Would that be accurate? Oh, yes. Uh, and, and, you know, China, again, has been involved with Iran from uh, early on. They provided the silkworm missiles in the 80s, and uh, they helped the train the Revolutionary Guard in the bases in China, actually, and, and sold a lot of arms despite the arms embargo then. But it's been one of the main partners on the economy front, and um, also back Backing the mullahs in, uh, in the United Nations and uh, and during the nuclear negotiations, China needs Iran because of the energy supply, because of the oil. Uh, it it gets much of its oil from from the regime at a discounted rate. It gets a lot of oil uh, that's not even counted for uh, through the pipelines of the guards and 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 a lot of contracts, billions and billions of dollars of contracts in Iran. And then it sells Iran. It's uh, 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 products, uh, really second-hand products, uh, a lot of them poisonous and others, and so there's been a lot of complaint by the Iranian people, but they can't do anything about it. And so this is a big market for China. Now, I should qualify this too, folks. Um, I'm as close as one can get <laughs> to the Canadian-Iranian community. That's why I do a lot of shows on Iran and terrorism. 97% of the people of Iran are as Western as we are, maybe more so. <laughs> they do not want the regime there, but they have no tools to combat the regime. The last time there was an uprising, we remember that CNN was splattering that horrible video, the barbaric uh, killing of that young girl. And uh, what the Iranian regime was accused of was bringing in Hezbollah, to kill their own people so that if something happened that they would get caught 
it wouldn't be the Iranian guards. It would be Hezbollah. So there you go. That's uh, some more stuff. All the rumors you've heard about Iran are true. Um, as I said, I'm as close as close can be. And I know this. I've seen the horror stories. I know the horror stories. And I've seen the scars. They're true, baby. They're really true. Reza Khalili is our guest tonight. We're talking about Iran. He was a CIA covert op in the Revolutionary Guards in the heat of things, in the heat of things in Iran in the 80s. When was the last time you had a chance, folks, to ask a CIA covert op any questions? You can tonight. Skype free. Freedom Screen 2. Freedom Screen 2, and I'll put you right on with Reza if you have some questions. Or if you're on the telephone, 310-421-4053, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. Terrorism is a subject I'm very passionate about since 9-11. Now, did Iran have anything at all to do with 9-11? Well, you see, um, there are reports that there was some collaboration. What we know for a fact, though, is that uh, there was collaboration with uh, uh, al-Qaeda members before and after, and uh, this is publicly known. Uh, they, they gave... Uh, secure homes and, and, and a path uh, to the al-Qaeda members after uh, U.S. attacks Afghanistan. And before then, there are documents that uh, there was uh, frequent travel uh, within uh, the territory of Iran. And so, uh, but, but we don't know for, for, for sure if they were involved in um, part of the planning. So that hasn't been proven, though there's been complaints in courts and filings uh, uh, by former intelligence officers and others that there are documents to that. But but we know that they've been collaborating with Al-Qaeda for a, for a long time. Reza, do you still have your hand on the pulse? Do you have folks on the inside that you're, I don't want you to reveal sources, and I should also qualify this as well, folks. Reza is under imminent threat, imminent death threats. Uh, there are Iranian guards out there right now um, looking for him to kill him, to shut him up. That's why his voice is disguised tonight, and I've had him on my television show, and he, will, he wore a full disguise. He had a baseball cap on, he had sunglasses on, and he wore a bandana across his face. This is serious stuff, folks. I mean, this is life and death. Um, that's why I'm very passionate about it, because I know these threats are real. As I said, I'm as close as close can be to the Iranian community here. As a matter of fact, one of the people I have interviewed fled Iran, and uh, he was involved in the chemical attacks in Iran. He was uh, during the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s that ended in 1988. Uh, going back a little bit in history, Saddam Hussein released chemical weapons on the Iranian people, primarily the Kurds, and killed a lot of women and children. The same thing that uh, Assad has done in Syria, killed a lot of women and children. And this fellow survived that, and uh, he gave me his story. So we know these things are true. Let's go back to Reza. Oh, by the way, folks, www.nightfrightshow.com. You can click on tonight's guest book cover. Take you right to a spot where you can order it. Also, let's take some calls. Freedom Screen 2, folks. Freedom Screen 2. If you have opposing views... 
call in. That's okay. I'll get you on the line. That's what this show's for, discussion. Democracy. Democracy, folks, is this precious little gem, as I always say. And the only way to keep it safe and protected is to be proactive. The government works for us. Let's not forget that. This is not Iran. This is not Iran where they decide who you're going to vote for. And if you don't like it, too bad. This is democracy in Canada and the United States. You have to be proactive. You don't like something? Get out there and protest. Just don't sit back on the couch and watch the Kardashians. Let's go back to Reza. Reza, how real are these death threats I just described? But they're real. Um, they always want to make uh, uh, an example of people who betray them. Many have been executed in Iran. Many uh, who risk their lives to to help bring about change. And right now, the prisons in Iran are uh, filled to the brim. But but those outside, those are who are active, those who have uh, collaborated with the West, uh, are always uh, in danger. Many have been killed and assassinated, and so. Uh, it's a it's a real threat, uh, and uh, I am aware of it. And your family as well. Yes, and 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 so you know they will get back to you uh, however they can, and they are pretty ruthless. So um, one has to watch uh, his back all the time. All the all the time. How did the CIA approach you? To get well, actually, you I. Well, actually, I approached them. Uh, when I uh, found an opportunity, I traveled to U.S. and then. Um, now, what sparked that? That's the story I was after. Yeah, well, um, I had uh, finished my education in the U.S. in the seventies, and then early on after the revolution, um, and, and and after the graduation, I went back to Iran to start working. And my childhood friend was uh, uh, within the guards at initial inception, asked me to help because, you know, uh, with my knowledge and education, uh, running their uh, computer division. And, and so I started, but simply shortly after that, I saw that all the promises that they had made, the clerics, that they would stay out of the business, they would stay out of politics, they would allow all parties be involved and remain out of power. Uh, was false, and they immediately started suppressing people to the levels not seen uh, before. And so that really broke my heart. And uh, with what happened to my other friends and his siblings and how they were arrested, taken to Evan prison, the torture, and what they were doing to the Iranian people, who, as you said, justifiably, they're one of the most westernized civilization in that region, and, and they love America. And so I thought I had to do something uh, and, and found an opportunity, came to U.S. and then contacted the government thinking that by letting them know um, the information about the guards, some of their secrets and the documents I had, that they would um, take some action. But that, that resulted in them proposing to me if I were willing to become their eyes and ears, which I accepted. And, and my hope and belief was that I could be part of bringing change to Iran and, and averting danger and threat to Iranian people and to the world. Now, this was under the Reagan administration, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, uh, it went on through the Reagan administration and the Bush administration. And, and after I came, uh, uh, I worked for a while in Europe with them. And then when I came to U.S., I continued collaboration. 
and um, I've never stopped uh, uh, contacts with the insiders in, in the guards, passing on information, making public their information, and so forth. Has there been any, any instances, uh, Reza, where you've passed on information and the CIA has used that and adverted perhaps a terrorist attack? Well, I can't uh, say that because uh, um, in this work you just pass the information, then they take it from there. You know, but with the level of information passed, uh, um, I'm sure there were scenarios that were averted and, and people's lives saved. Uh, one of the most important accomplishments of all those working uh, together uh, was uh, to bring about peace and force the regime to accept peace with Iraq and end the eight-year bloody war, mm-hmm. uh, which forced Khomeini to announce that he would uh, he was taking a cup of poison and uh, accepting peace. And that was a major victory because thousands and thousands uh, uh, lost their lives uh, during that war. I want to talk a little bit, Reza, in just a second about the Iranian hostage uh, taking uh, going back to the 1979 revolution. Uh, Folks, we're speaking with Reza Khalili tonight, real-life CIA covert op inside Iran in the Revolutionary Guards, www.nightfrightshow.com. If you want to Skype and join our conversation and ask some questions, when was the last time you had a chance? to speak to a CIA op. Any question, no problem at all, folks. Just call right in. I'll put you right through to Reza. Easy way to do that via Skype, Freedom Screen 2, and that's the number 2, by the way. I should have said that in the beginning. Freedom Screen 2, that's the Skype. And if you want to telephone, 310-421-4053. Guest is Reza Khalili. The book is called A Time to Betray, Show. Dot com. Click on tonight's guest book cover in the cold evening tonight and get the book. Real life tonight, folks. Real life. We're going right into it. We're talking about terrorism. Um, no question is uh, going to be rejected on this show. Not on Night Fright, folks. That's why I love this show, because we entertain any type of question you want to ask at all. Okay. Let's go back to that revolution. I'm just going to set it up for a second. Before 1979, folks, Iran was kind of a puppet, if you will, of the United States. It was run by a fellow by the name of Shah, the Shah of Iran. Now, Shah means king. Now, he was kind of a corrupt guy, but he did bring a lot of Western ideals into Iran, and it was a European country. Um, Iranians are Persians. It's the same thing that Italians are Italians. Um, and the same thing that Greeks are Greeks, it's, uh, they're their own people, Persia. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the Bible and the Torah, King Cyrus is the first human being ever to bring in a declaration of human rights on a scroll. Now, I've got to qualify that again <laughs> because we're looking at about 6,000 years ago. So, I mean, a declaration of human rights was not like we have and entertain ourselves with here in Canada or the United States or around the world for that fact in free democracies. But it was the first one. And everything else that has followed has been built on that. Uh, as a matter of fact, to honor that, 
his scroll today is in the United Nations foyer, so that's a pretty good place for it. That's the history of the Iranian people, by the way, folks. Uh, not the regime that's in place now, that's for sure. And if you run into an expatriate Iranian, they're going to want to be called Persian because that has a nicer connotation than that darn regime that's in place right now. Now, the Iranian Revolution took place in 1979. What happened there was people had got fed up with the corruption um, from the Shah. The Ayatollah Khomeini was a very religious cleric and he was promising to come in and keep all the Western democracy ideals and bring usher in a utopian type of regime. Well, we all know that didn't happen. The second he walked in, he started clamping down and bringing in Sharia laws. And uh, people had a cover, women had a cover, uh, women could no longer hold jobs, for example, as... Uh, as lawyers, as judges, or anything like that, a woman had to have a man, etc., etc. We all know the story. We've seen it before. In order to unify the country, because he'd just gone through a revolution, he picked a fight with Saddam Hussein. And as we all know, if you pick a fight with an exterior force or an exterior threat, that's going to unite the country. And the Iran-Iraq War took place between 1980 and 1988. And as we said before, there was chemical bombings in there. In order to clear a minefield, they would take young boys, 12 years old, 14 year old, 14 year old kids, to walk before tanks so that they would trigger the mines and save the tanks. And that's true too. So that's the Iranian Revolution. 1979, uh, during the revolution, Reza, some American hostages were taken, and most of us have seen the film Argo that was uh, an Academy Award winner two years ago, Ben Affleck's film. Can you tell us a little bit about that from the inside where you were and what that was like, what the film got right, what the film didn't get right? Uh, um, Basically, I think uh, the most important uh, fact is that it was all planned. Uh, it was um, uh, planned by the uh, radicals under Khomeini's approval uh, in order to immediately create uh, uh, a situation where the country moves towards a hard right uh, and to break ties with the U.S., and basically that was in his imagination and, and, and what they would say, the first punch uh, uh, into, the, into the face of America. That was what their, their belief was. And, and so um, and despite what they said, that it's just a student's gathering and all of that, uh, uh, it was approved. And then um, among those people gathered in were intelligence agents and operatives who, who knew exactly what to do and, and incite uh, the other students. And so um, the, the, the hostage taking was the beginning of, of this uh, ideology uh, that Khomeini wanted to implement. Actually, Khomeini, uh, majority of Iranians didn't even know who Khomeini was uh, uh, before the revolution. Mm -hmm. He hijacked the movement of many political parties who wanted more freedom. And let me say that Shah, basically, he was a very young man when his father was uh, 
deposed by England uh, and, and taken out of Iran. Uh, and, and so Shah did a marvelous job uh, because the country was in mayhem. Uh, it had been occupied. He had to get rid of the Russians. Uh, and it was a great ally to U.S. after that. It became... Uh, very secular uh, in a way that uh, everybody was free, and Shah was much more um, uh, open uh, uh, than his father ever was towards the mullahs and clerics, allowed them to preach openly, respected them, and at the same time building universities and, and a uh, modern society where everybody would have an opportunity to excel. The only thing lacking though was political freedom, freedom of speech, and and political parties wanted to be part of uh, open process, and that's how the revolution started, uh, and and Khomeini hijacked it. But um, Khomeini said he had three goals for Iran to his close associates, which has never been. Uh, I mean, I have published it, but it hasn't been out there. One was to create an Islamic state in Iran. One was to depose Shah. Second was to create an Islamic state. And third was to pass the flag of Islam to the last Shiites Imam, meaning for uh, uh, for the ultimate victory for Islam. So these were his true beliefs, and uh, he thought that he was missioned for that. And after the revolution, he became to... to to believe that he, he, he was God's son because nobody could have imagined overthrow of the Shah. And, and so those were his beliefs, and that's how the hostage taking uh, took place. And we know, folks, that the hostage were eventually released. Um, they coincided with the changing of the guard, if you will, at the White House. President Carter uh, didn't resign, of course. He left office and... And Ronald Reagan came in, and the Iranians uh, were a little bit afraid of Ronald Reagan because it was Ronald Reagan. He didn't put up with a lot of stuff. So that's the story of that, and there was a big Canadian connection there as well, folks. So some Canadian um, diplomats risked their lives, Ken Taylor uh, in particular, to get American hostages out, and uh, we were able to get them out, and we're all thankful for that. Reza Khalili tonight, folks, electric show. This is a hot topic, a hot show tonight. Skype us, Freedom Screen 2, Freedom Screen 2. That's a free Skype if you have questions. Every question will be entertained tonight. Uh, telephone 310-421-4053, 310-421-4053, Click on Reza's book. A Time to Betray, that'll take you right to a spot where you can order it. And he goes into much, much more detail about his time as a CIA covert op in the Iranian guards in the heat of things. Let's talk about drugs. Now, Canadian troops went over to Afghanistan as well as American troops, and a good friend of mine didn't come home. That bothers me. The biggest export of Afghanistan is drugs, heroin, the poppy seed. Are the drugs flowing through Iran and then being dispersed from there to the United States, to Canada, and all the other Western countries? Well, yeah, a drug is a big, big operation for the Revolutionary Guards. Uh, they, they gross about uh, estimates are somewhere around $20 billion, um, which they spend on their goods, forces, and operations, and terror cells, and 
mothers. And so it's a big operation. Even the United Nations has sanctioned uh, um, uh, guard commanders for that. The U.S. Treasury has sanctioned guard commanders for uh, drug cartels and all of that. Uh, and Rafik Dus, Mohsen Rafik Dus, one of the main commanders and the first minister of the guard, uh, he runs a big operation. Uh, where uh, uh, drugs are transferred via private ships and planes to uh, Europe, to Albany and others, and then through packages throughout Europe. So Afghanistan, yes, it's, it's a major hub for their operation. And uh, it goes throughout Europe and into Latin America, into Mexico. And um, uh, they mean business because they finance their terror networks. Uh, 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 through drug trafficking, and plus they have a project to undermine the Western society uh, by being involved in, in drug trafficking. And they've said it openly that anything that can undermine the Western society, mm-hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a right thing to do under, uh, uh, under Islam. Uh, and um, many of these shipments have been confiscated in other parts of the world, uh, which were placed into uh, parts, car parts and auto parts, going to the destination of the uh, Iranian companies outside of uh, Iran. But they're very clever, and they've been uh, running this operation for a long time. I've just got a question here that's just come in um, via text. I'm going to ask you. Reza, it says... Does Reza know or think that Masonic Order in Iran is actually running the show there and in cahoots with the other world leaders in Masonic High Order? Well, I think that um, as far as I know, and my knowledge allows me, is that uh, the establishment in Iran is deeply embedded in the Shiite theology. Can you describe Uh, that for our listeners? Well, uh, for hundreds of years, they've, they've, they've gone back to the saying of Prophet Muhammad and his descendants, Imam Ali and Imam Hussein and so forth, that when uh, the end of time approaches and what happens, and, and in, in Shiism, um, the 12th Imam, Imam Mahdi, who went, uh, who disappeared, who went uh, in hiding, they say, from when he was five, six years old. Uh, he's the anointed one. He's going to come back, and then uh, he will conquer the world and raise the flag of Islam in all four corners of the world. They, they have even created a map, and uh, there are many things from, from Imam Ali, the first Shiite Imam and others, how this is going to take shape and to look for signs. Uh, uh, oddly, one of the signs is when the walls in Damascus fall, the war in Syria. And so I think the best thing for your listeners would be to watch the documentary that I revealed, uh, which was made by the regime to be distributed in the Middle East, and I revealed it before they could do that. The coming is upon us, and it's on my website, uh, a time to betray.com. And that video which they made, uh, I have put subtitles, clearly shows their theology, their ideology, and, and what they're looking for. And one of the last signs is that Israel needs to be destroyed, and then that would trigger the coming of Imam Mahdi. So the establishment truly believes that, and that's why you've heard so many times that they've talked about the dis- destruction of Israel. Yeah, and folks, Shiite and Sunni 
um, there are two factions of uh, Islam. They're not. It's kind of like Protestants, Catholics. I'm trying to draw an analogy. It's not quite like that. Protestants, Catholics in Ireland, um, they're always shooting each other's butts off. There are various instances, though, just like biker gangs, I'll use that analogy over and over again, where they will come together for common benefit, and that common benefit, obviously, is terrorism. So um, there it is. Uh, That's what the Shiite religion believes, very similar to the Christian religion where they believe a messianic figure will come back and usher in an Islamic world, if you will. And as Reza just said, they're looking for the signs that that end time is upon us, just like Christians look at the signs for the end times. And um, Book of Revolution, a revolution, isn't that funny? Book of Revelation also says um, about the walls of Damascus falling, as uh, so does the uh, Quran as well. But, Everybody thinks Islam may be not a religion of peace, but I think any religion that starts off with a salam alaikum, uh, peace be upon you, can be definitely uh, a religion of peace. Without question, it also says that there's as many ways to come to God in the Quran. It says this, as there is people in the world, and I think this is one of the most beautiful things I've ever read. Reza Khalili tonight, folks, CIA op, black op, he was right there in the in Iranian guards in uh, Iran. Uh, if you want to talk to him, freedom screen too. All questions welcome, folks. We've only got them for a little while longer, so please do, if you're holding off, uh, call in now, freedom screen too on Skype. 310-421-4053 on the telephone. And as always, www.nightfrightshow.com for his book. Just click on tonight's book cover. Take you right to a spot. Reza, where are we headed with Iran? Are we going to appease them and let them get the bomb, or do you think Israel's going to go in and take them out? Well, I think it would be very difficult for Israel to do anything on its own because, um, you know, there will be... Uh, consequences, they are aware of it, uh, hundreds of missiles will rain down on Israel, unfortunately, and and so they've been holding back, believing that uh, uh, they can uh, have sufficient pressure for the, for the world community to act, but uh, I think that the U.S. particularly at this point, uh, and I've said this uh, for, for a few years, that uh, they've already accepted the nuclear-armed Iran. It's about containment yeah. and not about, uh, uh, not about uh, stopping them from acquiring the nuclear bomb. We are trying to contain, we are trying every which way, political way, uh, to somehow see if we can... Uh, have them move towards the West and give up the nuke, and that's naive because uh, they will have it. We know their history. We know how they run their operation. We know they're involved in uh, creating terror cells and in terror activities, and so we're going to be living in a much more uh, uh, dangerous world, and uh, uh, right now the Obama administration uh, basically has thrown in the towel uh, in the Middle East, in Syria, Iran, and others, and uh, we've got to see how that plays out. Yeah, it's funny, you know, I'm reading a, a terrific book by, um, oh, Abrams, what's his first name? 
Oh, I can't think of his first name. God, it escapes me. Anyways, he was uh, in charge of negotiating uh, under the Bush administration with uh, the Palestinians in Israel. And, um, geez, uh, he was bang on, Mr. Bush, with so many things uh, with Israel. I'm not talking about a lot of other things, but certainly with Israel. He understood. He was probably the first and only president to understand that you need two people to make peace. You have to have a partner. And if that partner is consistently trying to annihilate you, and not only annihilate you, but it's right in their constitution where they want to annihilate every Jew on the planet, it's kind of hard to make peace with people like that, isn't it? It's like, trying to, it's like the Jews trying to make peace with Hitler. It would have been impossible. So this is what Israel's up against today. And um, so, you know, we're going to open up the floor here, folks. Go ahead and call in uh, 310-421-4053 or Skype Freedom Screen 2, Freedom Screen 2. If you have opposing views, that's fine. I'll get you right through to Reza. He's a CIA covert op. Reza, what's the future for you? Um, I suspecting that you're probably living in America somewhere. I don't want you to tell us where you're living. Is there ever going to be a day you feel when there will be peace, a true peace with Iran, where the Iranians will be free again? Well, my hope is that uh, there will be such a time. Uh, obviously, we had that opportunity in 2009, and we missed that opportunity where millions gave gave it all to bring change, and they were so close, so close. If the West had only supported them, yeah, uh, they Obama would have went succeeded. Out and had an ice cream. I remember yeah, that. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate, but um, you know, um, I hope that soon one day we'll witness freedom for the Iranian people, and there will be much more peace and serenity, not only in the region but the world. Has the invasion of Iraq and the downthrow of Saddam Hussein? Has that aided the West or has that abated the West? Well, I think it had a major negative impact um, and, and really derailed uh, uh, our um, strategy within the region. Um, we could have handled Saddam in a much better way than, than a total invasion and billions and trillions of dollars of uh, money being spent there, uh, and many thousands of lives being lost, uh, not only Iraqis, but our, but our heroes, our soldiers. And so, um, as I've written in my book, I, I don't quite agree with the way that this was handled, and I think it was a mistake, uh, and um, we see the effect of that. Still, uh, U.S. is hesitant. Uh, to have any policies for the Middle East because of the Iraq war. And uh, the economy is still uh, it doesn't have a strong foothold because of the Iraq war. And so uh, there was a huge negative impact. And uh, we should have focused uh, on, on our policies of how to avert the Iranian regime from progressing in their ballistic missile and nuclear program and cornering Saddam, which we had done. Uh, basically, Saddam was... Uh, confined within a very a small uh, area of operation in Iraq, and um, all his army had been uh, uh, hurt by by the last Persian Gulf War, and and so um, I I believe we could have done better. Um, Reza, I had said at the outset that there was a Mossad report I came across 
that had the Saddam uh, Saddam Hussein's um, palace guard, I think they're called in, in Iraq. Uh, they used to be called, anyways, getting... Republic the, thank you, my friend, I forgot. And thank goodness I've forgotten. See, bad things go away after all, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Do you give much credence to that report that Saddam Hussein was getting his weapons of mass destruction out to Syria? No, it's quite possible. Actually, Saddam sent uh, many of its means, uh, uh, fighters, jet fighters, to Iran yes, um, before U.S. attacked. And so, um, an enemy of my enemy is my best friend, I guess, uh, Iran, Syria, and Saddam. Um, they would uh, uh, happily take uh, each other's arms uh, and uh, perhaps not return it afterwards, but... Uh, uh, Saddam parked its uh, fighter jets in Iran, sent some of its uh, 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 um, WMDs to other countries, uh, and maybe some to Iran. We never know. Iran has chemical weapons, and we know that Saddam had a ton of chemical weapons. So, um, That's uh, a good segue. You mentioned fighter jets. And um, I just got another text question. In, I think it was 1978 or 77, there was an Iranian jet fighter that took off and flew after a supposed UFO. Would you know anything about that at all? Uh, no, I have not heard about that. Okay, that's no problem. Um, okay, so that's Doc Who. Uh, here, just, hopefully you can get to this question above by the chatter... Name Daku. Okay, yeah, I uh, did ask that question. Um, the question again was: uh, Was the Masonic higher order involved with the Iranian regime? I think there's a lot of players out there, uh, and I think sometimes a lot of the governments act independently, and I think a lot of a lot of times some of the governments side with adversaries um, for their own benefit. It all depends on what their ultimate goal is. Speaking about ultimate goals, oh, here comes the music. I get, uh, do you want to stick around for a little bit of the second hour, Reza? Well, I have to uh, leave for another uh, appointment. But, no problem, um, my friend. Yes. I want to thank you for coming on the show. Reza Khalili, folks, we'll be back in six minutes. www.nightfrightshow.com Click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a spot where you can get his book, A Time to Betray. Thank you, Reza. Chodafez. Thanks so much for having me. God bless. You too, my friend. Bye-bye now. And welcome back, folks. I promised you a hot show, and it's going to stay hot, smoking hot. We're going to stay in the Middle East. If you're just joining us, folks, last hour we had Reza Khalili on a real-to-life CIA covert op. And he was inside the Revolutionary Guards in the heat of things during the 80s, the Iran-Iraq War. He was feeding information back to the CIA. And um, just an amazing, amazing brave man to come out and be willing to risk his life every time he comes on the air because there are Iranian hit teams out there to take him down as we speak. Show. You can get all of the archives there of all our shows. And uh, you can also pick up our guest's book. Every time we have a guest on, if they've got a book to sell or, or some kind of product, uh, out, of cur- out of courtesy, we always put it up. And uh, just with a little click, you can click on that, and that will take you right to a spot 
you can order it. Um, settle in, folks. We've got a good hour left, and it's hot, baby. We're going to keep it steaming, uh, Middle East steaming, for the next hour. Um, I want to stay in that Middle East, and I want to talk about oil. Now, oil seems to be at the heart of a lot of wars. Do we really need this substance? We're polluting ourselves. It's caustic. We're killing ourselves. What are the alternatives we could look at? Is it worth the cost in human life? Is it worth the cost for our health? We all know that the health benefits from oil. <laughs> there are none. Uh, I want to, you know, Canada, as uh, most of you folks know, supplies the most oil to the United States. It is not Saudi Arabia. As a matter of fact, Canada is second only to Saudi Arabia for oil reserves. Now, those oil reserves are sunk deep into the sand in northern Alberta. They, we call them the oil sands, and the way they get the uh, oil free from the sand is they have to use a lot of water, boil it up. The oil comes to the surface, of course. They skim off the oil, et voila, we have oil. They're trying to put a pipeline through all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. Is that a good idea? I want to hear from you guys. Telephone number is 310-421-4053. The Skype address is Freedom Screen 2, Freedom Screen 2. Now, I want to go back to human rights as well in the Middle East. Women. Women are being treated like animals over there. They're not allowed to drive. They're stoned to death. Um, they have virtually no rights whatsoever. Do we have a right as fellow human beings to stand by the sidelines and watch this take place? Or do we have a right to step in and say, no, this is unacceptable, and then we start going around in circles again? What are your thoughts? What are your guys' ideas? You can uh, call in once again at 310-421-4053, or you can Skype at Freedom Screen 2, Freedom Screen 2. We're talking about oil, human, uh, human rights in the Middle East. You know, there was, um, I had mentioned before a friend of mine had gone over to Afghanistan and had not returned with the Canadian forces. Another friend of mine went over as a front-line surgeon, uh, part of the Canadian forces, and he came home and he told me a story about when he was over there, a couple of little kids were going to school, little girls, for the first time in their life. And the Taliban came along and threw acid in their face, and he had to treat them. Now, how would you feel if you have children? You send your children to school one day, and all of a sudden you get a call and your child has had acid thrown in their face for no other reason than being female and for no other reason than for wanting an education. Is that barbaric to you? How do we deal with situations like this in 2014? How do we deal with the inequality of people not being able to get an education, especially if they're female? Do we have any right whatsoever as fellow human beings to say, it is turn our backs and say, no, it's not our affair. And if we don't turn our backs and we end up going in and all of a sudden we're regime changing and we're regime building, what does that lead to as well? How do we find a balance in this world of ours? Once again, folks, Freedom Screen 2, 
That's the Skype. And the telephone number is 310-421-4053. Let me know how you feel about these subjects. What are you passionate about? What are your passions? Is there a new world order out there? Is there a new world order trying to take over and create some kind of monstrosity where people will not have any freedoms left whatsoever? You know, uh, a friend of mine has gone away to Myrtle Beach, and she's left me her three cats to watch. And, uh, yeah, and they're sleeping on my bed. Every time I, I go to bed at night, they're there. And every time I roll over, they give me the eye, the evil cat eye. They have chips in them. She told me, don't worry about letting them out or if they get lost. They've got chips in them. And I said, what do you mean chips? See, I grew up in an era, folks, where there was barbecue chips <laughs> or there was salt and vinegar and ketchup chips if you were so inclined. These chips are embedded in the animals. And what they can do is they can scan this and it comes up with all the owner's information. Are we headed down that road as well with a new world order? Are they, in fact, going to be putting chips in all of us? You know, there's a, a lot of talk going on right now where they're talking about putting chips in us with all our medical records, which sounds like a very humanitarian cause on the surface, doesn't it? Doesn't that sound like a great idea? You know, you're driving along, you're in a car accident, boom. Uh, you've lost your wallet, you've lost everything, they don't know who you are, but they simply scan your wrist and there's all your information right there, right in front of them so they can treat you accordingly, they can find out what you're allergic to, if you're diabetic, if you have some kind of ailments that they should be aware of before they treat you in a certain way. All that is there. Doesn't that sound like a great humanitarian thing? But now let's go back and bounce it off the idea of a smartphone. A smartphone has a GPS in it. They virtually know where you are every second, every moment of the day. Do we really need that in our lives? Again, where do we find a balance for this type of activity? Let me know what you're thinking, folks. Freedom Screen 2, that's the Skype, or telephone 310 Four zero five three. Once again, three one zero four two one four zero five three. Freedom screen two. Again, I want to talk about being so close to the Iranian community here. You know, I've got friends, folks. Um, many people will stand up and 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 say, you know, this isn't true. The Iranian regime's just misunderstood. No, they're not. <laughs> can guarantee you they're not understood. They are the new Nazis. Uh, I have seen the scars. I have heard the horror stories. There was a young woman I interviewed, uh, Marina Nemet from um, Toronto. She told me that she was, she's Christian, she was arrested for being a Christian because they thought that as a Christian in Iran, she was going to speak out against the government. So she was thrown in jail in the 90s. In the jail, she was tortured. Uh, her feet were beaten. They swole up to the size of grapefruits, she told me. She was also raped continuously because, you see, if a woman is a virgin and she dies in jail or from another tra tragedy, she will automatically go to heaven. But if she's not a virgin and she's raped, then somehow this is the woman's fault and then she goes the other way. 
So they raped her continuously over and over and over again. Finally, it got to the point where they were going to kill her. They took her out to a small little courtyard in the middle of Evan Jail, which is this horrible jail in the middle of Tehran. Took her and her friends, blindfolded them, tied them up against the post. She heard the guns click, the orders given, and at the last second, a car virtually came screaming up. The door swung open. A lot of swearing and cursing were going on. Her guard, her sergeant uh, that was watching her, said, if you want to live, you'll marry me. Guess what she did? She was 16 years old. She married him. She eventually escaped that situation and made it to Toronto where she lives now. But that's a true story. And when I see people that should know better on Persian TV, on Iranian TV, uh, talking uh, in English for, for people that um, are just the Nazis, this, things like that just make me crazy. Tell me your views, folks. Don't let me rant here alone. Freedom Screen 2. Freedom Screen 2. Tell me your views on the world order, the new world order. Is that a good thing, a bad thing? Is the UN involved? Are there Masonic people involved? Tell me your views. Um, I'm going to promote my website for a second, www.nightfrightshow.com. There you are going to find a wealth of information, as I say as I'm proud to say. Now, this wealth of information, folks, has all kinds of archives. There's stuff there uh, of the shows that I, I've been doing here on Revolution Radio, but there's also stuff from previous shows when it was a television show. And uh, there's UFO things, as everybody knows. Nobody does JFK better than uh, Night Fright Show. And um, all those shows are there free for you to download uh, you can just go and download them at your leisure, watch them at your leisure, and it's a great resource, especially if you're doing uh, any studies on things. There's also a premium episode there called Terror of Bigfoot, for those of you that are into uh, Bigfoot, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on that. There's a picture on the right-hand side, and you can go and download that show. It's audio only, that show. Uh, last week's show was uh, absolutely outstanding. It was on Bigfoot hauntings, UFO sightings, and um, ghosts and mystery and spooky Sudbury, which is a place where this show started from in northern Ontario. Lots of great things there, folks. Uh, also, I should mention, um, people keep telling me <laughs> to plug this, so I guess I will. I've written a book on the Kennedy assassination based on my first-person witness um, interview with Ted Sorensen. Ted Sorensen, folks, was JFK's speechwriter. And somebody has just called in, and... Um, we were talking about um, we're talking about JFK and uh, David Lifton is going to be on in a couple of weeks and David Lifton wrote a groundbreaking book called um, my goodness as my mind blanks I need more coffee folks uh, the book is called uh, Best Evidence and he's going to be coming on to talk about his new book and I'm very excited about that because. Um, 
it's a subject that is very dear to my heart. As I said, I've written my own book. And I think we're getting closer to disclosure. And I'm very excited about that. Uh, disclosure, I think, is going to be forthcoming. You know, um, I spoke to Ted about it, and he was JFK's speechwriter, and he was from the Inner Circle. And I'm not going to give my book away, folks, but let me put it this way. You know all those guys that believe it was only Lee Harvey Oswald? They're wrong. Yeah. So, uh, without giving too much away, all I'm going to tell you is all the rumors you ever heard about the Kennedy assassination are true, without question. So, there you go, folks, and that book is called JFK, From the Oval Office to Dealey Plaza. And I was down in Dealey Plaza. Um, Geez, uh, just going back uh, to November 22nd, I was the only Canadian invited to speak at the memorial. And it was just, uh, I was just so honored and so humbled to be there. It was just a terrific, terrific experience. I really enjoyed that quite a bit. Uh, there's so many great researchers and great people there. Um, finding out the truth, I'd interviewed Dr. Robert McClelland, the doctor who worked on uh, JFK. And oh, we have a phone call. Let's uh, just take this over here. There we go. And we're speaking to Bill from Nevada. How are you, Bill? Whoops. Just uh, how you doing, Bill? I'm doing fine. How you doing? Good. Thank you for rescuing me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I listened. I, I enjoyed. I enjoyed the interview uh, uh, that you had with the CIA op and everything. I, it, it's not a subject that I am well familiar with. But uh, when you brought up David Lifton, as you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a good friend of David's. I'm, I'm his attorney, and uh, I was going to just uh, throw out a few things with regards to his book, Best Evidence, uh, which uh, you had a lapse on for a second there. <laughs> yeah, I, I apologize uh, for that. And, yeah, but, you know, um, uh, for people who haven't read his book, uh, let me explain something. He, as a historian, he discovered... Uh, and, and the main thesis of his book, uh, of course, is, is the alteration of wounds on, on, on uh, President Kennedy's body. You have, you have a, uh, the description of the wounds from the uh, doctors that are in Parkland Hospital, which are 180 degrees different than the description of the wounds uh, from the uh, autopsy that was performed at Bethesda. And, uh, and, of course, his thesis is that at some point in time, the only uh, natural uh, course of events that could have happened was that his wounds were altered to show that the wounds appeared from the, uh, the, the, wounds appeared from the back uh, versus from the front. Because uh, at Parkland, all of the wounds appeared from, from a shooter from the front. And then all of a sudden, at Bethesda, you, you have the autopsy doctor's uh, McClellan saying that the wounds came from the back, but in the in the midst of all this, in order to do that, uh, you had to be able to grab the president's body, the, uh, and so he went out and found all these corpsmen, these 21, 20 year, 19 year old corpsmen that are at uh, uh, Bethesda Naval Center uh, on the night that the president's body comes in for the autopsy that are working and they don't know anything they're just doing their job and they're all 
reporting that when the president's body comes in, it's in a body bag and it's in a shipping casket. Now, all of us my age, I'm 60 years old, all of us that grew up in that era, I was in seventh grade when, when President Kennedy was murdered, uh, saw that when his uh, body uh, was transported from uh, 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 Parkland to Air Force One, that it came on to the Air Force One in a very elaborate casket. Uh, and when it, And when Jackie Kennedy... Uh, and Air Force One arrives at Andrews Air Force Base that night, uh, you see her standing there uh, with the casket in front of her, and who's next to her but Robert Kennedy. Now, how did Robert Kennedy get on Air Force One? There is no footage of Robert Kennedy running up the, the, when Air Force One comes, uh, comes to a stop uh, where all the cameras are. You don't see any footage of uh, Robert Kennedy running up the steps of, of Air Force One. What happened was that, and I remember this distinctly because I was watching this with my mom, uh, as a, a lot of people were. When that plane was coming in for a landing, all of a sudden, all of the lights at Andrews Air Force Base went out. And Sandra Van Oker is on, is on the air saying, we've had a blackout, there's there something electrical, something has just happened. And what happened was Air Force One landed on the tarmac and came to a stop, and Bobby Kennedy ran onto Air Force One. So he's on the plane. At some point in time, at that point, maybe sooner, uh, uh, Robert Kennedy's body was taken off of, uh, or John F. Kennedy's body was taken off the plane. So these corpsmen that are at uh, 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 Bethesda uh, Hospital see him arrive in a black ambulance, not the gray ambulance that you see uh, that Jackie Kennedy getting into, but arrives in a black ambulance with seven or eight uh, uh, men dressed in suits, supposedly, uh, we assume, are Secret Service agents, uh, and he, he's in a shipping casket where they have to take the screws off uh, and is brought into the morgue. Now, that's what happened, and these are all just corpsmen that are just relaying they don't, you know, relaying what they saw. And a lot of these people, you know, they didn't even follow the assassination. They just took this at face value, and this is what happened. So for those, for, for people who haven't read David Lifton's book, Best Evidence, who's going to be on, it is a great source of accurate information from a great historian. Absolutely. And, you know, folks, many people that I've had on my show discussing the JFK assassination the first book they always mention that inspired them to go on to further research is David Lifton's book, Best Evidence. It is that groundbreaking. It's just like Jim Mars, who most of you who are listening right now know, with his book, Crossfire. That was a groundbreaking book as well. So we owe a great deal of debt and gratitude to folks like that, the original researchers, because everything else has been built on that as well. Now, Bill, I'm going to ask you a question. After reading David's book and speaking with David, because I know you guys are friends, do you feel it was a coup d'etat, or do you think the cover-up was perhaps more for national security, for lack of a better way? Well, you know, uh, 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 if you'll recall, uh, I think I had David on the phone with you uh, uh, about a month and a half ago or two yeah. months ago to, to, to introduce uh, him to you and you to him. And I, and I recall him saying that, he didn't believe it was a coup d'etat because a coup d'etat is a taking over of a government 
a regime uh, by force. That's and right. he maintained that this was, uh, this was done by the Constitution. President Kennedy was killed, and Lyndon Johnson took over the presidency per the Constitution. So it wasn't an outside force coming in and taking over the government and saying, this guy, Mr. X, is now going to run the government. So in the strictest terms, uh, 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 with regards to that, it, it, you know, you could say it's, it was not a coup d'etat. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's a lot. Somebody had to direct the Secret Service to do what they did. The Secret Service were the collector of all the evidence. Mm -hmm. The Secret Service, you know, took, uh, uh, uh acquired, uh, bits of the uh, bullets and everything, which you 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 never hear of. You, you know the 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 the, the, uh, the this one bullet theory that the bullet passed through President Kennedy and and lodged in, and 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 went through Governor Conley and it lodged into his thigh and they took it out and and uh, uh, you know and it was found on a stretcher and there isn't any. You know, it's like a pristine bullet, okay? Yeah, there's no but, you know, information. And all you have to do is listen to, you know, a lot of, let, let me back up for a second. There were two reports that came out regarding the Warren Commission. One was the, the Warren Commission's findings that came out uh, nine months later. It was a huge volume, and this is what we found. But following that, there were the 26 volumes of the Warren Commission, which had all the evidence in it. This was, had all the depositions in it, had all of the testimony in it and everything. And it was scrambled, you know, and uh, and the people, doctors that were called before the Warren Commission, and their own experts said, mm -hmm. "There's no way." And this is and this is in the 26 volumes. There's no way that one bullet could cause this. And you know, the marching orders from to the Warren Commission, which were written five days after the or three days after the assassination, uh, by Katzenbach, who is the Assistant Attorney General, said. The, the people of the United States have to be uh, 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 have to be made aware of the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin, and there was no conspiracy. Now, this is three days after this murder took place. So, any information that came in to the Warren Commission that showed that it, that that there was a, any kind of conspiracy, or there were more than two shooters, or more than three shooters, or more than one shooter. They weren't going to take a look at, and they put it all aside, and they and they only focused on what can we use to show that the possibility uh, of of one shooter from behind. So, uh, uh, anyway. and there's just so much evidence that flies in the face of that, isn't there? I mean, there's just so, it's plethora. I want to fast forward though to today. You know, we've got Obama in the White House only for a couple of more years. I don't know which way you voted, and that's not the purpose of uh, what I was going to ask you. But I, I, I keep feeling like his hands are tied. I keep feeling like he wants to do well by the country. He wants to do something to make a difference. And yet, it just seems that every move he makes, he's being uh, there's a wall being thrust in front of him. Do you feel much the same way? Uh, well, yeah, some some of these things don't make sense. You know, you, listen, he's a very smart man, you know. Uh, he didn't get to where he was not being a smart individual. And then, you know, you take a look at, you know, things that he does. And, it, it, it you know, and he's a good family man and, and you know, appears to be and everything else. 
And you just have to think, well, you know, there's someone, you know, back there behind the screen, you know, saying this is what has to be done and this is what you're going to do and, and, and so forth and so on. I don't know, you know, it's conjecture. Uh, you know, I, you know, there's no evidence to that, but, uh, it, it just, it doesn't, it just doesn't, it doesn't resonate, you know? Mm-hmm. The red flags go up. They sure do. Now, how do you feel, you know, Bill, uh, I'm a Canadian, you're an American. How do you feel about his call to bury Osama bin Laden at sea? Do you think that was a wise move? Or do you think perhaps it was more of an assassination than, than an operation? You know, I, well, you know, I, I, listened to, uh, I listened to a documentary not long ago, and, and, and I'm not in any way an expert on, you know, political affairs or uh, with regards to foreign nations. But the documentary made sense in that they said that it was necessary, uh, they felt, that his body be buried at sea rather than turned over to his family because they said that if that, was the, if that had occurred, there would have been this huge shrine that would have been a rallying point for, uh, uh, yeah, for, you know, for thousands and thousands of people which would spawn a terrorist because this was the official site of his burial. And I can understand, that makes sense to me. I can understand that. And, and so burying at sea, uh, that uh, type of uh, scenario was taken out of the equation. Of course, they said they were trying to uh, uh, go along with the Islamic uh, uh, traditions uh, tradition of, yeah. of having to bury someone within so many hours of the death or whatever. But I, but to me, the the uh, that rallying point of a shrine to someone, especially it just appears to be in the Middle East, makes a whole lot of sense because you know it just seems like that would have taken place. And that's yeah. all I can say about it. No, I I think that. That's perfect, Bill, because, you know, in the, at the end of the Second World War, they made a conscious decision to um, not only remove Hitler's remains and take them to Russia, but they also made a conscious decision to bury the bunker so that wouldn't be co- that Hitler was in in the last days, so that would not become a shrine for neo-Nazis, and they put a park over it, as a matter of fact. Uh-huh. And it's, apparently it's only now that they've started excavating it again. Uh, I don't know what purpose that would serve, but uh, there you go. So I think that makes perfect sense. You don't want to make a shrine to these guys where it's going to be a rallying point and a cry for jihadists everywhere to come and make a new Fatah against the West or something crazy like that. If it was a coup d'etat in 1963, November 22nd, do you think the same forces that killed JFK, this is just completely speculation, Bill, two guys talking, do you think the same forces that were in play on that day were also in play on April 4th, 1968 with Martin Luther King and then three months later on June 6th, 1968 when Bobby Kennedy was killed? I don't know about Martin Luther King. You know, that, that was a... That was a that was a strange, a strange set of circumstances, and and, and uh, uh, with James Earl Ray and everything, and and you know, I'm not an expert with uh, with regards to that, but with but with Bobby Kennedy, uh, I certainly could see that, you know, uh, because uh, he was going to go in and reopen up the the 
the uh, what occurred uh, in Daly Plaza on the 22nd. He was going to go in and 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 and, and open up the, what you would say the can of worms were and and try and come to uh, a, a, a determination of what actually took place. So for me, you know that that resonates and and I you know the uh, when you take a look at what happened there at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, um, you know, and, and you read uh, uh, about the amount of shots that took place, you know, they recovered like nine bullets uh, from, from the walls uh, of, of the room where, where uh, Bobby Kennedy was killed. And, and so it, that in and of itself uh, lends support to the fact that you know there was another shooter in there, all right, mm-hmm. uh, and and I don't know that Sirhan Sirhan killed him. Maybe he did. I don't know, but I do know that he didn't shoot off nine shots and uh, or eight shots, and and so uh, you, to me that makes perfect sense. You know, uh, it, you know that there were there may have been a, a, a hand uh, with regards to his killing, uh, as with uh, President Kennedy's. You know, it's funny because. Um Bobby said he was going to open up the Kennedy assassination again, and many people speculate that's why he was killed. Uh, Martin Luther King, as, as fans of this show will know, um, we had Larry Hancock on several weeks ago. Uh, that was a very, ago. very good, very good, a very good interview with him. Thank you very much, Bill. And uh, there's another ten bucks I owe you. Checks in the mail, buddy. <laughs> well, it'll, it'll all go to my wife, Angela Black. So. <laughs> <laughs> Let's plug Angela's show. Angela, are you there, babe? Yeah, let me come over. Thanks so much, Brent. Uh, you know, uh, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Okay, so anyway, everyone. Well, um, no. In front of me, of course. <laughs> I'll leave my shirt on. I don't want to scare the children. <laughs> So basically, I have a show here on Studio B on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. It's uh, every weekday but Wednesdays, and we have the amazing Dr. Robin Felkoff, who does a morning show on the uh, on the A Studio, the Studio A, in, in the mornings every weekday. But she, on Wednesday afternoons, she has a show at the same time slot as my show, uh, which her show is called uh, Things They Don't Want You to Know. And so my show basically takes place 5 p.m. Eastern, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, so every weekday but Wednesdays, where I'm, and I do an hour, and it's a news show, and I bring up a lot of stuff that you won't hear on the mainstream media whatsoever. A lot of the uh, topics that I focus on are water, uh, you know, clean water, you know, you know, spills, you know, chemical spills, this type of thing. Um, well, Angela, I mean, let me ask you this then, sweetie. Um, you know, one of the topics I wanted to get on was uh, the oil sands in Canada. Now, as I said before, Canada supplies the most oil to the United States. Right. Now, we know oil is caustic. What's the? Can we find a balance? You know, because it, obviously, if we're going to be using oil, um, from just from a security standpoint. And a logistics standpoint, it's a lot better to get it from a country that's as stable as Canada than, say, Saudi Arabia, where they're treating women like cattle, uh, and, and the surrounding countries like Iran and Venezuela and places like that. But on the other hand, you see, this is where I'm torn, I'll be honest. The other hand, we know it's not good for us. So what do we do? Wow. It's, you know, basically what we do is talk about it on air. Uh, you know, because we're just humans, and uh, you know, we aren't these huge um, conglomerates that are yeah. basically raping the planet, if you will. 
in, in general. Uh, I've got one right here looking at, um, uh, you know, a big graphic picture of the Canadian oil bloom, the Canadian sands, as you put it, yeah. um, uh, once considered too expensive as well as too damaging to the land. Uh, the exploitation of Alberta's oil sands is now a gamble worth billions. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a quick it's a quick paragraph if you want me to read it. Sure, please. You know, I just wish the hell some of that money had thrown it. You know, I'm a Canadian. would go in yeah. my pocket. <laughs> but, well, but it's interesting. Did you, you know, know that, the- that we pay higher, um, higher prices for gas than you guys do in the States? Gas Is- meaning gasoline? Yeah. Does that make sense to you? Um, well, it depends on, you know, the, you know, the, the, the dollar versus the Canadian dollar. But, yeah, if you guys are supplying us, well, it's export. It's export. Yeah. So I really, you know, these are things that are, everything's always a baffle to me. I, I'm always baffled by these particular facts, that, that one that you just threw at me, because obviously I haven't been in Canada lately. What are you guys paying for gas up oh, there? Oh, geez, I can't do the conversion. I used no, to know give, the me, give me the Canadian. Um, it's a dollar twenty nine a liter. So I don't know what's so it. A liter, four, which I think there's almost what uh what four liters in a gallon, right? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's so it's a dollar twenty. Yes, you guys are paying over like five bucks a gallon. And then what's the uh we we talked about this last week or two weeks ago. What was the conversion rate? I mean, is the dollar better than the Canadian dollar? Is the do, is the Canadian dollar better than the dollar? Last I heard, the American dollar is worth a dollar ten. A Canadian, so it's worth ten cents more. So you guys are paying almost six bucks, six and a half a gallon. It sounds like because I think the, um, I think that the liter is a little bigger than the quart, and there are four quarts in a gallon. So basically, you guys are, yeah, you are paying more, which is very interesting, yeah, uh, yeah. especially if you're exporting, you know, the most oil to the United States. You'd think. So it, it might, it might you know, let me interject, and sure, I don't think about this, but it might be, you know, the population that you have up there is nowhere near the population. Yeah, what uh, is here, the population of Canada? Almost 35 million, depending if I if I go across the border to Watertown or if I stay in Canada. <laughs> so <laughs> I got that. <laughs> so the so to me the price would be uh, it seems to be it would be higher because they don't have the amount of people uh, to sell the product to versus the United States, where you yeah, can, supply and demand. Yeah, so you mm-hmm. can, you can yeah, lower the price because you've got more because you have more you have more demand. We so. we would lower the price because we have more demand. Yes. Yeah, not you, meaning yeah. the Canadians, right? Yeah. Okay, so you Canadians, you. Anyway, um, so That's just uh, here's a quick article by uh, Robert Kinzig, uh, Kunzig, and uh, so this is a, 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 it's a graphic. It's coming from NationalGeographic.com. And it says, uh, one day in 1963, when Jim Boucher was seven, he was working out the trap line with his grandfather a few miles south of, south of Fort McKay First Nation Reserve on the Ath- Athabasca River That's in correct. Yeah, Alberta. Good pronunciation. And, and thank you, Alberta. And, and for people that don't know what a trap line is, he's trying to catch fish. There you go. Thank you. So the country there was wet, rolling fen dotted with lakes, dissected by streams, dissected, and uh, draped in a cover of skinny, stunted trees. It's part of the boreal. Is that how you say that? Boreal? Yeah, boreal. Yeah, forest, it's a French word. Uh, yeah. A forest that sweeps right across Canada, covering more than a third of the country. In 1963, that forest was still mostly untouched. The government had not yet built a gravel road into Fort McKay. You got there by boat or in the winter by dog sled. Now, the Chippewayan and Cree Indians there, Boucher is a Chippewayan. I actually, you know, uh, uh, am, 
I hail from a town called Chippewa Falls, so that's very interesting. Um, but uh, where uh, we're largely cut off from the outside world for food, they hunted moose and bison. Uh, they fished the Athabasca for walleye and whitefish. They gathered cranberries and blueberries. For income, they trapped beaver and mink. Fort McKay was a small fur trading post. It had no gas, no electricity, no telephone, no running water. Those didn't come until the 70s and the 80s. Now, all of a sudden, you're looking at these huge oil fields. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and, the, and the desecration of the entire, uh, of the entire yeah. uh, area. You know, it's mm-hmm. crazy. Hold on. I'm having an issue with this uh, particular. Uh, yeah, let me see if I can. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm getting stuck The Canadian here. government just, just shut us off. <laughs> <laughs> they just closed down the website. Oh, yeah. We're they, not talking they about hockey. Well, anyway, so I'm looking at this particular area where you guys are going through, um, you know, where the trap line and the cabin used to be in the forest. There is now a large open pit mine. Uh, And uh, let's see, I'm being cut off on this article, which I'm totally bummed out about because I've literally got to create an account to, you know, you kind of caught me off guard. Anyway, point is, uh, lots of stuff going on in Canada regarding drilling, you know, in our country. Uh, you know, we've already kind of gone through. We've gone through the coal thing. We're still in the oil thing, and now we're definitely uh, in the fracking thing. Uh, you know, and that's where I was getting to the water part with is the fracking uh, spills. You know, the fracking contamination. Uh, you know, fracking, uh, of course, being the drilling of you know into the shale for natural gas. Uh, also, there's been some big uh, coal slurry spills in West Virginia, and I believe possibly South of North Carolina, and uh, you know, on the Elk River. River and uh, in the Kanawha County, etc., all kinds of things going on regarding water issues, and uh, it just really—it's um, very saddening. In general, uh, the uh, state of of the water in North America, as well as probably the planet. Uh, but you know, I do focus, of course, you know, on our continent just because I, I happen to live here. You know, so in and general, yeah, yeah, and you're going to have Edward James almost on as a guest. And um, he's a huge water advocate, and yes, I'm, I'm so excited about that show. Um, do you know when that show's going to be, Brent? Not sure yet, but uh, it, we're working on trying to I'll find speed it. Him. Yep. Okay. Do you yeah. speak with him? Uh, I am. I spoke with him several months ago and invited yeah. him on the show, as well as uh, several other celebrity guests, I guess you could say. And uh, they all seem keen on coming on. And uh, well, so I'm just following up with their Agents, I guess you could say. Yeah, yeah, they're and people. Just, yeah, you yeah. my people will talk to your people. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm my people. So. Yeah, I hear you, man. I produce my own show as well here. You know, but I so want to stay on that, Angela, with water because last summer there is a ferry that that is on the Great Lakes, and it ferries cars to and from an island, and it ran aground because the Great Lake was down over two feet. Now, that's a hell of a lot of water to be down. That is. Um, That's uh, Lake Superior, by the way, folks. Now, what is encouraging is this year, you know, it's a Canadian birthright, folks, that we bitch about the weather, no matter if it's warm, if it's cold. It's a birthright. We have that right, and that's right in our Constitution, allowed to bitch about weather, Canadian. It's freezing this year. It's been abnormally cold. And one good thing about that is the lakes have frozen over again. Now, what's good about that? It not only replenishes the water because of the amount of snow we've had, it prevents the sun from evaporating the water, and that was the nemesis in this particular case. 
So this is a good thing, actually. It's replenishing the water resources here in Canada. And, well, that's uh, great news. Yeah, it, you know, it, it's great news for the lakes, but it's not so great for the humans as we all right. bundle up and, you know, rush from uh, from house to car to car to house. So um, the other thing is Canada's got the most fresh water in the world, so that's something uh, we're very grateful as well. Uh, and only 35 million people, we're not going to run out of water anytime soon. So that's another good thing. However, well, it'll still be, you know, uncontaminated, non-contaminated. Precisely. And that's the issue that we're talking about. Exactly. That's what I wanted yeah. to get into. Yeah. And actually, I just got that article. So I'll read another paragraph if you like. Sure, please do. So where the trap line and the cabin once were in the forest, there is now a large open pit mine. Uh, here, Syncrude, Canada's largest oil producer, digs, what is it, bitumen-laced sand? That's bitumen? exact, yeah, it's exactly what that oil Okay, is. Uh, from the ground with electric shovels five stories high, then washes the bitumen off the sand with hot water and sometimes caustic soda. Next to the mine, flames flare from the stacks of an upgrader, which cracks the terry bitumen in and converts it into Syncrude's Sweet Blend, a synthetic crude oil that travels down a pipeline to refineries in Edmonton, Alberta, Ontario, and the United States. Mildred Lake, meanwhile, is now dwarfed by its neighbor, the Mildred Lake Settling Basin, a four-square-mile lake of toxic mine tailings. That sand dike uh, contains, uh, is, is, let's see, that sand dike contains, it is by volume, one of the largest dams in the world. So basically you're looking at the contamination of water, and I, I know that the, that the fresh water, um, you know, availability in Canada is vast, but, you know, continue on with, you know, this oil production, and, you know, it's just a matter of time, whether it's five years from now, 50 years from now, whatever it is, it's, you know, it's definitely going to pollute the you know the North American water supply and so yeah it's it's very dangerous um, yes yeah we, we you know there's that balance again um, yes we Good shut question. down the oil and sands we're not gonna, <laughs> you know if we shut down the oil sands we're not going to shut down oil uh, people are going to still want to run their cars we haven't moved beyond that yet and right. I don't know what it's going to take Um for us to move beyond that. I mean, so many people have come out with major alternatives, and they all seem to be pushed down. And I'm wondering if there's a conspiracy there by the oil companies to push yeah. all these great new inventions down. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you want to elaborate on that? That's a very interesting thought. Well, you know, people come along and they say, okay, look, we can run your car off water, for example. Remember that? There was a big buzz about that in the news a couple of years ago. Oh, you mean water? We could use water? Well, of course, yeah, we'll use water. And it just goes back into the, um, into the atmosphere, and then it just drops down again in the form of rain, non-pollutant and everything else. And then all of a sudden, I haven't heard about it for two years. And then there was the electric car, which seemed like a good idea until we had to plug the sucker in, and where are we going to get the electricity from? So... You know, we keep coming back to this oil and oil and oil, and why are we not using more green technologies? Um, why are there not more investments in that industry uh, than well, it is, what we're it is grow, it, Yeah, it is growing, you know, uh, bit by bit. What is growing? The, the, the green technology. Uh-huh. But, the, you know, the, the source of funds that come from green technology – you know, dwarf in the amount of money that oil companies have. 
Yeah. And they're not, and you know, and they're not, they're not going to invest. You know, it's all about the money. They're not going to invest the monies that they could. Uh, but you know, you, you know, you've got hybrid cars coming out on the market. And uh, wait a minute, but I also have to interject there because the hybrid car runs on a battery which is powered by a particular mineral called lanthanum. I believe that's what it's called, and that is being mined at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, and so, in general, they're now you know raping the bottom of the ocean to get this particular. It takes like ten kilograms of lanthanum to power a hybrid car battery. So. You know, you know, what is it? Six? What is? What's that saying? Six and a half dozen. Oh or the yeah, other? six of one, half dozen of the other. Yeah, whatever that is, it's you know, either way, it's raping the planet. And people who are driving the hybrid cars, you know, don't really realize that you know, it also takes a raping of the planet to power these cars. So you know, it's very interesting because green technology is not necessarily green all the time, and uh, you know, people are misled. I think yeah, solar is you know so important. Wind, you know, and and for that matter, water. But it would be very, you know, if you're telling me right now that two feet are are um, are uh, in two feet of of water has disappeared from Lake Superior. Lake Superior. Yeah. Jeepers. I, you know, I used to I used to live right near there, you know, in Wisconsin, so that's very odd to me. Water is, I think, the biggest issue on the planet. Um, you know, Africa has known it longer than we have, and in general, I'm just finding out that because of what we're doing to the planet uh, and the wildlife and the ecosystem, et cetera, that, you know, it is going to become literally, you know, you know what oil is today, water is tomorrow. Yeah, I think, I think you've you've actually hit the nail on the head with that you know economy wise uh, i used to drive my bicycle every i used to be a bicycle messenger and i always had um, a little button on my shirt that said put some fun between your legs drive a bike <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah, and did you did you did you wear those tight little clothes at the bicycle? Hey, hey. Well, I'd be like, that's his vision. That's my husband here. He's not supposed to be asking those questions. That's okay. <laughs> uh, it, uh, I used to flop to the left, Bill. By the way, and and folks, if you're getting the visual on that, just remember, you know, don't be too judgmental because I'm in Canada. It's cold. That's all and I have to say. TMI, as I'm calling it, too much information. There you um, go. <laughs> But anyway, I'm going to let you guys get back to your, your, your talk. I, I thank you for letting me promote my show. Yes, indeed, water is um, you know incredibly important. I, actually, I can hang out if you wanted to continue this. Sure, it's essential for life. Um, yeah. How is the water situation in Nevada? Now, you're up in the mountains, lots of snow. Yeah. Is that an yeah. issue? It's been the driest winter in uh, you know history on some particular months. Since like 1887 or something, the, the January was was we have for some odd reason. While the rest of the country is getting completely hit with you know just you know you know and and Canada as well you know this polar vortex which is you know keyword polar vortex etc you know with lots of snow and and God knows what's in it you know God knows what's in the snow these people are lighting their snow on fire etc I don't know. Uh, but what I do have to say is, here, we don't even have any snow on the ground. It is absolutely bizarre. And, of course, um, uh, you know, California is going through a huge drought. And I was actually on a conversation last night on a roundtable, and I'm going to be looking more into this particular situation. But So there's a drought, right? Okay, there's not a lot of rain, right? Except for, guess what? There is um, um, irrigation that has always been happening in in California, and I believe a lot of that water, you know, is is fed from the Colorado River, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but anyway, I'll, uh, you know, and there are more, I'm sure. 
But the aquifers are apparently not being tended to at all lately. And so, you know, there, there was a supply of water coming in from uh, particular rivers and, and that type of thing into California. And these things are not being tended to. They're broken. They're this. They're that. And I'm about to start looking into um, the Central Valley Water Project, I think it's called, et cetera. I'll probably re- be reporting on that on Thursday. So as much as it's, um, you know, a, a rain issue, it is also a, a, a particular fact that the irrigation that is uh, possible and, and available is not happening to California, which is very interesting to me. So I'm not I, I'm not an expert on it. I'm going to be looking into it today. I almost reported on it uh, on my show today, but I I didn't have time. I got into a few water issues, including the West Virginia Elk River, you know, I- chemical spill issues, the drinking water over there. So in general, here I am, all about water, all again. And so I just I don't. Well, that's really a good think- segue, Angela, because we've only got a few minutes left. But I want to talk about next week's show. And that takes place in the middle of an island, and that island is Oak Island. We're going to be looking at the Oak Island mystery, folks. Interesting. Yeah, you know that big deep hole that, uh, you know, people say there could be a Templar treasure down there, and we're going to be looking at the Templars as well. So don't miss that show. Um, is, that off the, is that off the coast of Nova Scotia? That's right, yeah, and okay. it's fascinating, fascinating history. That is fascinating. That is very fascinating where they... they 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 think there's a there's a shaft that goes all the way down and there's and there's wooden beams and everything yeah, yeah. wow I don't know anything and about booby tra- this. and there was booby traps booby traps I said goodies booby traps so go on Ben. let's hear about that so who is do you have a guest and- I do the guest's name is Christopher Gray and uh-huh. uh, he's got a book out called uh, the ships of Solomon and uh, the whole thing is a mystery that takes place actually in Canada and uh, Montreal my own my old hometown, and you know, I had heard the uh, the rumors about the Templars arriving in Montreal for years and years and years, and perhaps that's where they got the um, uh, not the Ark of the Covenant, the uh, the Cup of Christ, and um, the Holy Grail, and that may be in Montreal as well, and that's what many people think is buried on Oak Island, perhaps wow. the Holy Grail. So we're going to be looking at all that next week. So it's going to be exciting. It's a subject I am fascinated with. Because I love these mysteries. That's why yeah, I did the show. Yeah. It, 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 it is a great story, and, and, and there is something there. I mean, there is something you can physically touch yeah. uh, on that island. So, yeah, this will, that'll be interesting. Yeah, it's going to be really cool. So, I'm really looking forward to that. Angela, your show is every night at 5 o'clock. Eastern? Uh, yes, every every weekday except for Wednesdays, and it's just a one-hour news show. Not just, but I mean, it's a, it's a one-hour news show, and I, I try to get in as many news stories as I can. Uh, and thank you very much, yes. And then uh, directly following me on Tuesdays is a news show that we have uh, with Dr. B. Sirius and Don Osborne. And then after that, of course, is your show, which is right now, Revolution Radio. Revolution Radio, baby. I'm Brent Holmes. 